welcome to the fourth and final season of RoyCast, the original Succession podcast. My name is Brendan, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Gabby. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. And thanks to those of you who have joined us these past 15 successionless months for a few bonus episodes on various topics. If you listen to those, then you'll know today's returning guest from the epic two-part episode where we cover the work of Danny McBride and his HBO series, The Righteous Gemstones. We are pleased to be joined again for the Succession season premiere by Marie Bertineau. Hey, Marie. Hi, thank you. Thanks for coming back, yeah. I was happy to. I loved talking about non-Succession HBO properties, and now we could do the real thing. Yeah, that was fun. If anyone hasn't listened to our gigantic two-parter Gemstones McBride episode uh could hold you over while you wait for the next roy cast succession episode it's a good one we promise an expansive and dare i say encyclopedic treatment of that particular subject i think most people listening to a danny mcbride podcast would not expect that conversation to go down all the avenues that one went down <laughs> um but we, we tried but we tried to cover it all from every direction um so we are here to discuss season four episode one the Munsters, as usual, we're going to do a quick plot summary and then start diving into the things that most interested us um, about this episode. So in this episode, a week before the presidential election and months after the events of the season three finale, Kendall, Shiv, and Roman are gathered in L.A. to pitch investors on a new media startup called The Hundred, while Logan hosts a muted birthday party with his remaining loyalists in New York. Simultaneously, the siblings learn through a dropped hint from Tom that Logan is pursuing Pierce again as part of an acquisition that would leave him with the combined ATN and Pierce organizations after the Gojo acquisition closes in 48 hours. Motivated largely by spite, the kids cobble together the financing to make a higher bid that wins over Nan Pierce. And returning to New York, Shiv has an emotional face-to-face meeting with Tom in their penthouse, where she refuses to discuss their marriage and reiterates her conviction that they should finalize their separation. Alone, Logan calls Sid Peach to express his dissatisfaction with ATN's late-night programming and seems to consider his options. So we're back again with a kind of, uh, I guess the pejorative word for what this episode does in TV terms is table setting. Um, But if we're thinking about kind of where the last season left us, because I was reflecting on this this weekend, um, you know, the last season finale, it really did kind of clear the table in a big way. There was a real sense that like, you know, Kendall's arc has kind of reached a bit of a conclusion, you know, Shiv's in an uncertain place, you know, but we're not really sure what, you know, things are going to look like for the siblings moving forward, right? And the prospect of the family not really having control of the company anymore, it means that like, unlike the other sort of like cliffhangers of seasons past where we had, you know, Kendall's bid to take down Logan or the uh, Sandy and Stewie kind of takeover that was a threat to the company. We really didn't know exactly what the shape of this season was going to look like. And so going into this week, we're kind of looking at what are the threads that, that the show is starting to tease out? What are the things that are important to the show in this kind of end game? So they're kind of, uh, they're kind of getting the jet in the air, you know, slowly. They're slowly reaching altitude. Um, and this is, uh, so this episode is a little bit in kind of a, a more fun key. I think it's not a, not, it's not like the weighty tragedy of the, uh, of the previous season finale. Um, but there's a lot of clues for us to start to pick through. Um, I guess we want to start with, uh, uh, formalism corner, right? We want to start with talking about, uh, the look of this episode. We want to give a shout out to director Mark Mylod. Uh, whose film The Menu has now grossed $80 million worldwide and has been logged a million times on Letterboxd. I think everybody just watched that movie on HBO Max as soon as it dropped. Marie, did you see that movie? 
I sure did. And you know what? I watch very few new releases and I did not hate it. I found it very diverting. Yeah, that's the consensus on the menu, right? Didn't hate it. I think that's uh, that's pretty much what where most people have arrived at. There were things about it that I quite liked, actually. Uh, I like that Ray Fiennes isn't above continuing to play campy villains, uh, despite what his background and early career might have you think. He seems to actually have kind of a, I don't know, sense for picking fun roles, especially now that he doesn't have to work at all with all that Voldemort money. Right, and the movie, of course, shows off Mylod's great facility with actors. I mean, he has he's basically defined the kind of house style of succession at this point, this sort of signature shoulder-mounted camera that, like, weaves between the actors. And something you notice if you watch this episode is, you know, the use of kind of, like, rack focus where the shot will begin focusing on one character in the foreground or background and then shift focus to another character. Um, I thought of that in particular because this episode focuses a lot on Shiv, um, who, as we said, is in kind of an uncertain place after the previous season finale in regards to like her marriage, you know, her sense of self. Uh, there are a lot of great shots in this episode of, you know, Snook, Sarah Snook looking very uh, flustered, very, uh, uh, you know, we've said previously that she, her, you know, Adam Naiman once said that her gift is, you know, looking unflappable and it's fun to see her flapped. So she's, she's, she's flapped a lot in the, in this episode. Um, and uh, Mylod tends, I think, to get these episodes, you know, these episodes where Snook and this character uh, sort of reveal some of that emotion that they're suppressing all the time. So there are a lot of great Snook scenes in this episode, a lot of great shift material scripted also by Jesse Armstrong, who tends to write these, uh, the finale episodes that have had those scenes in the past, particularly This Is Not For Tears, uh, which has that great scene between Shiv and Tom that similarly uses that rack focus um, a lot. Yeah, I mean, it ends on her face, you know, looking completely stunned at the revelation that Tom betrayed her. And I think going back to that face again and again in this episode is interesting, given where it ends up. Yeah, I thought she was terrific here. Um, I thought everyone looked pretty fresh in this episode. This is the longest, um, you know, time elapse from a uh, finale to a premiere for Succession. Um, season one to season two was two days. Season two to season three was mere minutes. And this was about three months, um, they mentioned. So um, so a little bit different, maybe like a little tonal whiplash for some people I was reading. Um, but, you know, we've, we've you know talked about that. Uh, the show employs that quite a bit, transitioning from episode to episode. So, so we're used to it. I thought everyone looked uh, pretty fresh in this episode. Jay Smith, Cameron, Zoe Winters, Justine Loop were looking very, very like good. Their clothes or their demeanor? Just, just their demeanor, just their swag. Like I thought Jay looked beautiful. The clothes. <laughs> he always <laughs> looks beautiful. I mean, she, yeah, she didn't have much to do, but she looked gorgeous. And um, you know, Zoe Winters is like, who plays Carrie? You know, she, she had a little bit more to do, and. Uh, you know she's she's got some swag and so like you know i was i was pretty impressed by her uh, i like that her hair is like a shiny helmet i know <laughs> everyone's yes. talking about her bangs yes. her dumb bangs yeah um it is very very shiny hair and uh justine's hair was very blonde and and um she just, you know she's looking very first lady-esque is that is that naomi justine Oh, that's a uh, Willa. Sorry. Oh, Willa. Oh, and yeah. then oh yeah, there was yeah, also she got the she got the Fox News hair. 
absolutely yeah and then there was also fox news wife and then she there was also the yeah, uh, split opinions about annabelle dexter jones who plays naomi and her uh her new her new haircut um i thought it looked good i thought she looked good yeah i thought she looked cute yeah, she'd previously been mentioned as being a, a Californian, although I don't think she's from that area, the wine country where they're hanging out in this episode. We get to see some some new loca- some new locations because the siblings are, you know, the siblings are New Yorkers. We see them in New York all the time, you know, shuttling between their high rises, penthouse apartments, etc. But this time they're in. We start out with them in California, um, in this really remarkable house. I was hoping that uh, maybe Marie, you could talk about this as a Californian. Oh. I know Gabby, you did some research about the architecture too, right? Yeah, uh, I was going to say they have the Trump problem where they don't know what to do on the West Coast. They're not comfortable and they don't like it. They don't ever want to like take off their shoes. No, their their souls are permanently in Midtown. Like they're just, um, it, it just doesn't vibe. It was so funny because I think about the Mad Men LA episodes where everybody just like immediately slips into like this vibrant swimwear and takes off for like hedonistic adventures and the roys are just yeah don loves it (laughs) he gets on so well there (laughs) he loves it he does so well in la and so i was kind of like i I mean i don't know what i expected um but they're so pale too they're all like vampirically pale you think they would start sizzling the second real sun hits their skin (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Particularly like Sarah Snook and uh, uh, Kiernan Culkin, they're both so porcelain, alabaster, they, they vampiric are, yeah. in a way that's, it looks really good on them. If they got any color, it would be bad. I think the word you're yeah. looking for is Irish Marie. <laughs> <laughs> Although I thought, they're, I thought they're Scottish in the show. But. They are. Well, they, yeah, they have those, um, those pinkish undertones that will turn yeah, to but... red very quickly. <laughs> I know it's it's funny because this was like a gorgeous house and there was all these uh, little gadgets and beautiful pools and um, they're just sitting around talking about the hundred. Um, these people just absolutely have no idea how to have any fun. Roman, I think he tried a little bit. He had like a two toned blue. Um, you know, he 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 made an effort to to be a little bit California swag, but. Um, yeah, which which kind of made me think of the negotiation scene later on in this episode when Roman's like, why aren't we using this extra half bill for snowmobiles and sushi and Shiv and Ken do not even register no, it? No, they don't like um, it. We'll, we'll get into that, but, you know, it's on brand succession. Nobody wants to have fun. Nobody has fun. Nobody knows how to have fun. Um, but the, the, the house that Ken Shiv and Roman are hanging out in is um, in the Bel Air Pacific Palisades area. Uh, it was bought for $83 million by 26-year-old billionaire Austin Russell, founder of the self-driving company Luminar. Talk about Never heard of it, by the way. Succession. I know. Who the hell has heard of that? Talk about a, a, a succession um, kind of dude. Oh, he got uh, those Thiel bucks. Yeah, he got I Thiel bucks. A $100,000 grant from Thiel to fund it. Yes, um, uh... uh uh, Roy Cast Patreon uh, subscriber Peter Teal, thank you. <laughs> so the house is twenty thousand square feet, six bedrooms, eighteen bathrooms, total decked out smart home, retinal scans. Uh, the master bedroom. I saw a picture of it. If anybody, uh, maybe we'll 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 link the uh, the the um what are the what are the, the Zillow listing. There's a retractable roof in the master bedroom and custom projection screen 
for the ceiling in the master bedroom. Two other cinemas, one indoor, one outdoor, and the house itself um, is next to Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson. Yeah, so my, my whole thing about this was we're in agreement that, like, nobody actually lives in this house, right? Like, it's either a property no. that, like, yeah. potentially one of them owns, but they don't use. But more likely, it's, like, something that just, like, sits empty for business deals like this. Because they're supposed to be meeting with, like, investment money. There's supplied to be, like, Middle Eastern oil money they're meeting with at this right. house. Potentially, it's owned by this banker character that they're using, TELUS. Or it's owned by his bank, rather, just as, like, an asset or something that they use as a venue for meetings. But it's, like, nothing about that house suggested that anybody actually lives there um yeah and they all said that they'd been traveling around for the last few months looking for money and and meeting with investors and pitching so i don't know it's unclear how long they've been staying there uh where they've been you know going roman made it seem you know, at the end of the the pierce uh, uh acquisition scene that that you know he's going back to his bedroom in, in la that so so maybe he's been camping out there a little bit longer than the others i don't know um, i just want to call out from the architectural digest article about this house this is, a, this is an what? architectural digest ass episode this is the most ad house tour episode the most? we've had mm-hmm. oh yeah, yeah for sure i mean like i don't i can't recall any other episode where we had like i mean just like the style of this home was just like it was just so like modern looking and it was the kind of thing yeah. that you see in those like glossy like youtube real like home tour videos and stuff and like all the other homes on that are showcased on the show tend to be like a bit older or a bit um, yeah that's true. More, uh, have more of a history to them. But yes, precisely. There is a 200-pound bronze Buddha from Thailand in the Zen Garden, which we did not get to see. There's <laughs> also... <laughs> There's like a, a little clip of it in the very beginning when Ken's entering the house. Oh, really? That... You did You did clock the Buddha? You uh, I don't know if I saw the Buddha, but I but I saw the Zen Garden. I, maybe I'm mixing it up. Maybe I saw it on the Zillow listing, but I definitely saw the Zen Garden. Yeah. I'm just so... reading this thing. And then the... Uh, <laughs> The Architectural Digest walkthrough, a quote from it is, if you take a piece of this concrete and walk around the Santa Monica Mountains, you think it just came from the earth. Because it's the right okay. shade to look like real rock, even though it's poured concrete. So that's the house that they're in. Just complete Architectural Digest bullshit house. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we have we have some more notes here about the the, the Nan Pierce location, but maybe we'll get oh. to that a little bit later when we start talking about the um, the Pierce scenes because where we're 15 minutes into the end of this episode, we need to start talking about the plot. Um, the actual episode, yeah. The actual episode, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, but I mean, it's not it's not irrelevant. The idea that these characters are in a home that nobody lives in, that people are a bit unsettled. I mean, you know, we did start the last season with this idea that everybody was kind of in transit, that they were in non spaces. This isn't quite the the case here but people are very much you know the routines are a bit different i mean like you know we did start the series remember of course with logan's birthday party and he had his entire family there he had marcia he had all his kids um things are very different for him now you know he has tom and greg at his party people who are you know kind of family but they're not his kids you know he has his oldest son connor the second pancake as uh, as shiv once called him um and uh he's uh he's not satisfied you know that's where this idea of you know the title the munsters comes from right this idea that he has like a a fake family a fake tv family surrounding him this sort of (laughs) grotesque parody of the familial relations that he wants you know these yes men and these hangers on who can't be honest with him and so that leads us to maybe the most interesting scene in this episode 
it's a very curious one because there's a number of different ways to interpret it, but I'm talking about the scene where Logan, you know, decides to leave his party with his bodyguard, Colin, who accompanies him everywhere, um, and they go to a diner, um, and they sit and they have this very unexpected conversation uh, where Logan calls Colin, you know, his pal, his best pal, in I wouldn't fact, call it which, a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, perhaps that's generous. Well, I mean, yeah, this is it's 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 worth unpacking, I and mean, maybe this is unwarranted speculation. But I mean, again, trying to read the tea leaves of what this episode is setting up. If we're looking for indication of where the season is going, I do think it's notable that in this conversation we do get, I think, the first kind of biographical information about Colin that we've ever gotten, as vague as it is, when he says that he has a very religious father. Um, you know thinking about how the casting department kept things pretty tight this season in terms of like new guest stars and people we're mm-hmm. bringing in, you know, we're sticking pretty close to people who've been previously established as part of the regular and supporting cast. It might, it might be interesting to look at Colin and see if his role is going to be expanded at all. You know, I mean, we, I know we've been on this podcast before, uh, adamant that uh, Colin is rather underrated, I think, by other commentators. You know, again, not to name yes. names, but I again heard a, a podcast by somebody this week who was paid to talk about the show who did not seem to know that Colin had a name and was not just the, quote, security guard. Um, but he is a very significant presence, I think, you know, He's symbolically. He's not a security guard. Yeah, that's body not really man. accurate. He's a bag he's a body man. man. He's more than a yeah. He's definitely he's a, a body f- man, and, and he's he, a fixer, right? I mean, like this whole idea that what are the kind of skills that somebody in Colin's position needs to have? What kind of history might he have? I remember when we had Everett Rummage on, he suggested that a guy like this is probably ex army, ex special forces, and uh, there's a little bit more we can read into that conversation, right, Gabby? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was great. We love talking about Colin on the show and his role in the show, so. Um, you know, it was it was nice to get a moment of, of uh, humanization for him. My, my, you know, my guess is he's from a very conservative Catholic family from one of the, the redder parts of New York, um, South Brooklyn, Staten Island, maybe Long Island. Um, Scott Nicholson, who plays the character, has a very heavy New York accent and he doesn't, um, you know, modulate it at all for the for the role. So I would I would say he's probably a um, native New Yorker, Irish Catholic and then went to the army eventually special ops and my guess is that he's probably been with logan for the last 10 years or so um it's just kind of the vibe i get uh we you know we've talked about the kids not having friends quite a bit and their ability inability to form friendships or their just utter like disinterest in having friends um but we haven't really considered it much with logan i guess because he's just always has so many people around him um, but Logan is really, really miserable in this episode without his kids to, you know, play with, so to speak. Um, and, you know, absent Carrie, the only person he can seem to tolerate is Colin as he, you know, pulls him out of his own birthday party, which he can, you know, you know barely seem to, to handle being in the room. Um, you know, and even Carrie is still just a woman to Logan. Uh, chauvinist like Logan women are just you know for sleeping with for mothering and you know for being quiet competent I think it's it's interesting that um, when a woman helps Logan like when she is a useful ally or even colleague like uh, Mm -hmm. Holly Hunter's character like his ex-wife Marsha and now Carrie I think that he has to have sex with them so that he can't possibly see them as an equal in addition to them being, you know, somewhat of a colleague and a peer. Like, he can't conceive of 
a woman being a helpful ally to him just you know without that element and so they're yeah. all his sexual partners in a, any woman who helps him out he definitely has sex with I would counter with Jerry, but then even in season two, I think it was, Brendan and I, like we were doing, you know, our, our big, huge uh, rewatch. There is something that possibly alludes to the fact that maybe something happened with Jerry. Oh, back in the I, th- day. I think that that's probably the case. Probably the case, yeah. Yeah, yeah they say um, something like Jerry was the hot new thing at one point, right? I think that's right. the line yeah. from either Frank yeah, or Yeah, and it, it makes Roman upset, yeah. Anyway, it was, you know, it was kind of unexpected to hear Logan say this out loud and i had like a very like quick twinge of sympathy for him just the way cox delivered the line was so pathetic um you're my best pal it was so funny like a little kid but it was it was mostly pity um but i guess it speaks to you know his current loneliness and his general fixation with loyalty as a virtue i mean this is obviously not a real friendship it's just logan's contorted view of one but, you know, like thinking back to season one, I mean, Colin has been around forever. People might not notice it, but he has. Um, in the Austerlitz episode, Logan gets, uh, you know, that bag of pee thrown at him by a protester. And he only wants Colin in the bathroom with him um, to help clean him up. Colin helps clean up the Kendall situation. God knows what else he's seen and helps clean up. I mean, he's literally a soldier for Logan. I think we've called him a mercenary before. So, yeah, it was nice to see him even just very briefly because Cox interrupted him, um, you know, get a line in here about his background. I think there's probably a very uh, a thriving market for ex-special ops to become sort of mercenaries and body oh, men for these 100%, types. 100%. 100%. Yes. It- yeah. When you pointed that stuff out about, you know, all the things that Colin has done in the past, it reminded me of Veep, you know, uh, Tony Hale's character, the body man who's mm-hmm, her closest mm-hmm. confidant and also the yeah. person that she chooses to throw under the bus at the very end and send to prison for some campaign finance malfeasance. So it's nice <laughs> to have your most indispensable and yet expendable person close to you uh, so that you can then throw them away without any further compunctions. If you're this type of person, which I would put any politician as this type of person. Uh Right. I mean, Logan's sort of cynicism and his utilitarian views of other people are not, again, not irrelevant to this conversation where he sort of begins. It's not really clear what this conversation is about for Logan, other than him sort of trying to express a dissatisfaction that he feels and isn't quite good at verbalizing. He begins by talking about, you know, he has the question, what are people? And Colin has that very funny reaction. He's like, I know, right? Um, (laughs) But he begins by talking about people, he says they're economic units, you know, but together they they form a market. Um, And then he asks Colin if he thinks that there's, you know, if there's an afterlife, if he thinks that there's life after death. And again, I'm just looking at, you know, what what is this spelling out? What is on Logan's mind? I mean, that question of, you know, you get older, you know, there he if he's thinking about his birthday, he's probably thinking about the stroke he had on his birthday a year or a couple of years ago. We're not sure exactly how much time has passed. They said um, specifically, it, don't ask how much time has passed. <laughs> I, I think I think the safe inference is that it's been two years, but again, it's two years know, seems just, about right. It's it's wobbly, and Jesse has said as much. But you know, yeah. But although well, he's Logan thinking seems... about the bit, the main thing he has to worry about upon his death is the issue of succession. You know, and it has it's not any closer to resolution. Yes. 
Right. Well, I mean, he's kind of punted the problem, right, by deciding that he's going to sell his company. But even now, in the, but even in this episode, we get the sense that, as always with Logan, he can't quite bring himself to do it. He can't bring himself to let go because he's talking about spinning off ATN for himself as part of the deal. And he wants to merge it with Pierce to have sort of a super news organization. We've talked about ATN before as the thing that is like the closest thing to like a pure like psychic expression of what sort of like Logan's it is. It is the thing that he puts into the world that is like the purest expression of like himself as this media apparatus that shapes you know political discourse and you know political life in this country and around the world um so he's understandably i think if we understand logan's psychology at all he's uh loath to to let go of it and i think that this dialogue you know draws these inferences between this sort of endlessly acquisitive sort of like destructive drive that's at the heart of somebody like Logan who equates you know conflict and power with existence it is something I think that the show kind of says you know to speak very broadly about you know capitalism right now that you've said that it kind of occurs to me that he is dissatisfied and spinning his wheels a bit in this episode you know he thinks that his party is dead he's dying for everyone there to roast him and they won't And then at the end, after the negotiation, when his kids get one over on him again, he kind of comes to life a little bit. He calls them back. He sort of kicks into gear, I think, uh, starts talking a little bit more excitedly, like a little, a little bit, you know, not too much. But when he calls them at the end and says that memorable parting line, I think it... Having conflict with his children again is something that he secretly wanted and was secretly living for. It absolutely keeps him alive. Yeah, it's it's interesting to contrast with the death drive that that um, you know, with, without his children to kick, and um, you know, to be kicked back by, he he really seems to have uh, a very very hard time finding and, you know uh, he's something to live for. It's been firmly established that Logan is the product of a very physically abusive home, and uh, yes. so the the vector. The way that he relates to the people that he theoretically loves and those closest to him is violence and conflict. And he doesn't have another channel for those, like, relationships, I don't think, you know, hard that get hardwired into you when you're a little kid getting abused physically, as we know that he was. So reopening the channel of the relationship with his children through conflict probably feels right to him. Not to over armchair diagnose or oversimplify what he's been through or you know what makes a man like that but I think it's evident that he's most comfortable relating to his immediate family uh, in a very conflict oriented mode well I wonder if we can spin that back towards the idea of religion that of course comes up in this conversation and because he's asking you know is there something after this and you know Colin says, well, I have a religious dad, but, you know, and Colin, and then Logan says, but realistically, and Colin says, well, I don't know. And of course, Colin's not going to, you know, <laughs> really voice yeah. a strong opinion to Logan <laughs> about anything. Uh, but but Logan agrees. He was like, yes, we don't know. And then he has that, Cox delivers that line so well. He says, but I have my suspicions, right? And I think, as I read that, is he suspects that there is nothing else, that, you know, right. that, that this life is all there is. And what does that mean to someone like Logan? If there's nothing after this, you know, what are you supposed, what is the meaning of life? when you're someone whose only language is power and conflict i don't know i think that as a again canonical catholic in the show he might believe as many i've i've heard many catholics in interviews in various um avenues uh, kind of say 
that, oh, yeah, there's a hell and I'm going to it because they believe, you know, they believe in it and they think that all men are sinners and kind of uh, destined to end up there. I was reading uh, two instances of this come to mind. Martin Scorsese said something along those lines, maybe almost explicitly that at some point in an interview and... Uh, the famous CIA spymaster James Jesus Angleton in a late-in-life interview was talking... <laughs> sorry to bring it all back. I'm sorry. I gotta, I gotta put it in there. Um, no, that's a great poll. I endorse it. Go on. Uh, he said something along... The, in a late-in-life interview, he was talking about all of the monstrous um, people that he's known in his career working for the CIA and says that they're in hell and that he expects to see them there soon just sort of flatly like i think it's a common belief or not common but certainly not unheard of belief among people who were raised catholic that there is an afterlife and it's not going to be good for them but oh well well yeah, yeah that's I mean- what i was was wondering also uh, as i thought about this because we know logan's only sort of nominally catholic and he, he you know it's it's come up a few times in the show but you know he's certainly not going to mass every week but you know, I, I thought maybe Logan has a hard time believing in an afterlife because if he did, he'd have to contend with the thought that he's probably going to hell. And I'm not sure Logan um, can stomach that like some of the people you just mentioned, Marie. I don't know. Well, I, mean, I, kind interest- of, I kind of perceived his comment to Colin is he's, he has suspicions that there is an afterlife. Yes. And that's, and the, that's good, the part right? that's hard to deal with. And it's not good. At, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, like what you point out about, you know, these Catholics who are convinced that they're going to hell, I agree with you, that is pretty common. But the interesting thing about it, it's not necessarily doctrinally kind of correct, right? Um, because Catholics... No, such seems place, to be cultural. Yeah, because Catholics place such emphasis, you know, doctrinally on penance and reconciliation, the idea that you can confess your sins and you can be forgiven. You know, you just got to go and you got to say the words. Um, Of course, a lot of folks don't do that. And actually what, you know, the sort of like Catholic doctrine tends to breed in people is just this sense of scruples and this sense of, you know, that the world is very tightly ordered and that there are lots and lots of rules. I mean, that's the Catholic structure. There's, there's, There's the Catholic canon. There are rules for everything. There's a whole set of like you know, canon law, there's all this, there are, there are rules for everything you can imagine. And so I think the way that Catholics tend to come to see the world is that everything is disordered in some way. And in that sense, everyone is in needing of purging in some way. And that is another very interesting way to look at this. You know, if we're thinking about Logan's mood at this point in his life is becoming increasingly, you know, a dim and dour and dark outlook on humanity. Might people be in need of, of punishment in some way? And, you know, with the, uh, with the position he's in with endorsing this very scary candidate for president, might he be poised to sort of loose some horror upon the world um, out of some sense of, you know, him himself as like a, a messenger of some kind of like divine justice? I, that's something, you touched on something that I'm very interested to see this season, which is this uh, new right neo-fascist presidential candidate that sort of explicitly last season when he was talking to was he talking to Kendall or Roman about his personal belief Roman about his personal beliefs and he was kind of uh, favorably mentioned Hitler yes yeah uh, H. H H yeah <laughs> called him H uh, I think the show very much has its finger on the pulse of this um, new rightist uh, whatever you want to call it kind of um, 
neo-reactionary scene and intellectual kind of set of ideas like you're I think that somebody on the show I probably Roman possibly Shiv and Kendall too have read you know the likes of Curtis Yarvin and subscribe to some of those ideas uh and it's pretty you know that stuff is like super dark but you can kind of see it coming out in the political stuff in the show yes yeah it's definitely coming out i i'm going back to uh, our annotations 306 what it takes which was that political episode and you know i don't know about shiv just because she fancies herself such a liberal i'm not sure she consumes this stuff even if her politics you know functionally um the outcomes you know are are, are the same um, but she calls it YouTube provocateur bullshit, aristopopulism, rapes natural, it's all red pill baby, Medicare for all, abortions for none, um, whispering, whispering swastikas in dad's ear. He's talked about burning Qurans and licensing press c- credentials. Um, I think that stuff is really interesting and very disturbing because those people are, is. they are separate from, but also ahead of and informing the kind of Fox News discourse. Like you're people who espouse that stuff that you just talked about it tends it trickles on down until we get to a point that i kind of used to talk about privately to caleb that i feared that the you know right wing of the right wing would turn into a uh economically populist socially reactionary group that seems well, jo- to be jo- happening. Jordan Peterson was at a uh, Logan's birthday party, right? There's then. a there, Wait, there's an individual. No, no, no. Well, there's an individual in the background of the party. You see him in two shots. You get a really clear shot of him when Colin and Logan are leaving. His his facial hair looks is is very. It's Jordan Peterson. It looks like him. It looks like a younger version of him. I think I don't think it's meant to be him, but it, but it did strike me because you see him twice and it's very it's very jarring. But yes, all this stuff. Well, the about- writers are clearly really tuned into all that stuff to Jordan yes. Peterson yes. to Curtis. Yarvin I to, think what's his name the Catholic blogger Rod Dreyer Rod Dreyer yeah I think that is unmistakably where this season is going I mean the ATN stuff the presidential stuff I mean the the threads in this episode that don't necessarily go anywhere in plot terms in this hour are all about the presidential race about Connor's presidential aspirations about Logan's sort of dissatisfaction with ATN which is what you see at the very end he's watching ATN on TV and he's dissatisfied he's right about that guy I mean if you watch real Fox (laughs) News at primetime which you know you can't avoid it in some situations like they have they're hot yeah yeah, babes like attractive (laughs) gorgeous women and men that at least look okay that guy was not a primetime ready host well i think he was watching it i think it was about to be like 2 a.m or something because i think the the chiron says it's like you know atn early or something like that yeah oh that's funny Oh, he's, so like he's taking is, issue with the like, but they're late, just showing like host. tabloid, you know, like jogger stabbings and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, but he's like, means- this is when people watch. This is that is literally what Trump did. Like Trump <laughs> would just watch Fox <laughs> right. News all that's night a, long. He did. Yeah, he didn't sleep. Call. I, you know, so, if you yeah. ignore the content, it's entertaining. It's entertaining television. They take the best of reality and comedy and uh, kind of wrestling and mix it all together to make it as you know, dopamine triggering as possible. Yeah, I mean, I'm so excited for the Mankin stuff. I mean, we've talked about it a lot. Just we love Justin Kirk's performance, but also like you were talking about, Marie, it's just, um, you know, the way that the, the, the writers are, are, you know, crafting this alt-right world, um, you know, it rings very true. Uh, nobody is uh, skipping a beat there in terms of, of getting it right. Yeah, yeah I, I actually think- was, I was, I was re-watching 
what it takes today and there was a thread in there such a good episode yeah and it puts it put that episode puts me in a terrible mood it's like it's such (laughs) such dark it's such awful vibes that episode but that there's a thread in there that i kind of again this is like the fallacy of doing week-to-week recaps there are things you miss like the forest for the trees because you're trying to cobble together your own sort of like reading of the season as it goes on um building you know building the car while it's in motion but uh, the thread in there that I hadn't quite picked up was that there's a very like pointed thing the episode is doing where Shiv is really pushing the Hispanic candidate Salgado, played by Yul Vazquez, because you know she has this deal on the side where like maybe he's going to put Logan in jail if he gets to be president, and nobody in the room is buying Salgado, but there is a contingent that's for Boyer, for Reed Bernie, the current vice president. And there is a real element in which Shiv's self-interest and her sort of blinkeredness actually enables Mencken to kind of win that conflict there because she doesn't see all in the that stakes way, involved. In that way, she is liberals. She shows her real liberal Democrat bona fides by doing that shit. <laughs> Well, uh, and uh, they I mean, we'll get into the the kids, but there was also mentioned that Shiv is doing some advisory work for, I suppose, Mencken's competitor, uh, another Hispanic name. What was yeah, it? Yeah, it was it was Jimenez. Jimenez. I was I was just like, why is it always a Hispanic presidential <laughs> candidate on TV shows? Like we've never had one in real life. I mean, I'm sorry if I'm missing some presidential. We've never history. had one that uh, made like the final uh, four. Uh, We've never had like a, a from a, from a major yeah. party. We've never had a, a Hispanic presidential candidate, but yeah, Unless it's like you West want to Wing. Count Mitt Romney. Yeah, West Wing. <laughs> Mitt Romney. It was West Wing. It was Jimmy Smith. It was I forget the actress's name, but I think her name was Laura Montez on Veep, who replaced Selena Meyer. So it's just a it's just a it's just a funny common thread. Um, but uh, yeah, I do want to. I think we kind of covered the material already. That's kind of in the, one of the other classic Logan scenes in this episode, the sort of roast of Logan, quote unquote, where he's they're sitting around kind of in this upper room where they're in, I guess it's Logan's office in the penthouse, but they're trying to get the pure steel going. They're aware that they're competing with the kids and Logan is like slumped over in his chair and he's bored and he starts badgering everyone to roast him. And he's got Tom and Greg there and he's got his C-suite. And uh, of course, everybody's just like terrified of like, you know, the, the prospect of roasting Logan and saying the, the, the wrong thing. You know, in Tom's words, these people are hard to riff with. Um, you know, it's obviously <laughs> part and parcel of what we've been talking about, where he misses the sense of conflict with his children. He also misses just their repartee, where they had that sense of entitlement to, you know, breach decorum and say whatever they wanted, right? Particularly right. Roman, you know, he's, you really feel him missing Roman in that scene. You know, the Roman's C-suite. Roman's got that gesture's privilege. He- yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jester's proof is all the way, and 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 uh, Logan loves it. Logan laughs so much at Roman. If you go back and and, and watch episodes, sometimes he just straight up cracks up at things that it he says. It reminds so. me of uh, in Arrested Development. Um, Lucille often only laughs at Job, and yes. only when he says something like extremely <laughs> racist. They bond over she's, this constantly, <laughs> and she yet she still claims he is her least favorite. <laughs> It, it's it tracks it totally tracks I, I mean i love the arrested development uh succession comparisons I, from day one it was like but yeah maybe maybe one day we could do a, an off-season well, episode about i think that. caleb's <laughs> favorite drum to beat about the comparisons between i, arrested, I saw his, is, tweet, oh, his tweet and it was it was very funny the yeah. old people in those both of those shows have sex their children are like too neurotic and too busy but uh, George, up George sets, Sr. Yeah. and Logan Roy are like James Bond fuck, out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I mean, the, the sitcom. I wanted, yeah, I wanted to bring up the sitcom thing again because uh, Logan yeah. makes the Munsters illusions illusion again in this scene, where he calls he calls this C suite, he calls the folks in this room the Munsters, and again, it's this idea that he doesn't have the family he wants. He has a parody of a family, but I mean, it's also that idea of being in this kind of like old timey sitcom, this like safe, stakes free humor. Um, and you know, the Munsters was itself kind of a parody of like leave it to beaver kind of like family comedies, family shows of that time. Um, and I think for people who we alluded at the top, you know, some people maybe watching this episode go, Oh, another sort of like meaningless, you know, mergers and acquisition episode where everybody's just like saying numbers to each other. How many times can the show do this? I think this episode is the show pretty explicitly lampshading that because I think that's what Logan is conscious of too. He wants to break out of that cycle in which he has these meaningless conflicts. He wants something real to happen. And before he he dies. Yeah. And he wants more real conflict. Because all the merger of the week stuff is not meaningful anymore. The numbers are just... People talk a lot in this episode also about how numbers are meaningless. They're talking about figures that are life-changing amounts of money for any person. But in their world, they mean nothing. And the way that they're treated are so abstracted. Like, it is like a, you know, just another merger of the week. Another meaningless billion-dollar deal. Nothing will come of it because next week I'm going to be much more concerned with my interpersonal drama yet again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the only thing that really animated Logan in this scene, and, and the C-suite was very funny, Peter Friedman. Um, <laughs> what, did he, what did he say? <laughs> he, said, he said the thing about Logan Roy is he's a tough old nut. <laughs> tough old nut. <laughs> and Logan I love like, that guy. <laughs> That actor I is great. I want to see Dave, more of David, him. David, I love him so much. Um, David Rask is great, too. Uh, what did he say? Uh, butter my bean pole. Like, where the fuck does he get these things? It's so someone, funny. Someone find the, uh, the Peter Friedman fan cam that somebody did last season. That's one of my favorite things I've ever seen. So, yeah, what, what really... I know, and poor Jerry sitting on her phone, probably looking for private island she could buy or looking at job listings i she was just like logan this is horrible like she's so she's so done um but the the funny the funniest thing for me in this scene was greg um greg doesn't even hesitate to say you know you're mean he says you're a mean old man you're a mean old bastard and you scare the life out of folks that's your thing and you're scaring me right now and everybody in the room (laughs) just looks totally shocked even tom um so but logan likes it because it gives him it it wakes him up and he gets to say you know come on and do more and tom or greg goes all the way says where are your kids and even if Logan that hurts him it it allows him to do what he had wanted to do which is really let loose and say that thing about Greg's dad sucking cocks at the county fair yeah which is so funny because the only other time that uh, Greg's dad has come up and in the (laughs) in the same way was uh at Chiv's wedding prenuptial when Caroline is meeting Greg and uh, remembers him and recalls him from, you know, the past and says, oh, you know, your your dad used to try to sleep with all the men in Sausalito. And uh, I like <laughs> so how just, I wonder how true that like, I wonder what the real story is with Greg's dad, because clearly he is be interesting a to know. gay man who has left the picture. But this family's tendency is to massively exaggerate any kind of uh social faux pas or perceived weakness that somebody has so yeah i mean i'm not sure that it's it, really trying to sleep and there with is all spe- the men in <laughs> sausalito 
Right. I mean, and Caroline and Logan are not, uh, you know, they're they're pretty homophobic. They like to be horrible and say horrible things. So who knows? But um, it's kind of funny that the two of that, you know, you can imagine the two of them probably laughing back in the day. Yeah. And just Greg's like this story dad. just gets exaggerated more and more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It could have just been sucky cocks at the county fair. But um, but Greg took that that insult on the chin. And, uh, you know, Greg kind of in this episode is uh, he's, he's finally letting loose. And uh, I, I'm enjoying Greg going full lech and and dropping the doe-eyed shtick i which i was getting very tired of um it's been so back and forth it was starting to grate a little bit so it's 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 kind of fun to see him go full asshole very satisfying he can't play you know at the level of logan but no at least he tried (laughs) i think that greg's like his superpower is kind of taking abuse a little bit and that can be very helpful like as someone who has worked in hollywood and just like being able to be stone-faced when the boss is verbally abusing you or whatever is a very useful <laughs> skill at all kinds of business. I can take a lot in terms of psychological pain. <laughs> Greg Gr- Greg Hirsch. <laughs> that is the line I was going to pull out. Yes. Yeah, I mean yeah. we were we were talking about where to fit in the Greg and Tom stuff, the disgusting brothers in this outline. <laughs> um maybe we can get into that now um because Greg and Tom, you know, they do we do get a bit of quality Greg and Tom banter in this episode, you know, we're, we're still not sure exactly what, you know, at the end of the last season, Tom's promise to Greg was that he could be heading out of the endless middle and towards the bottom of the top, meaning that, you know, perhaps now he's, rather than being, you know, an assistant on Lackey Slack, he's now some sort of, you know, low level, but an executive at, a, at Waystar or ATN. But their relationship hasn't necessarily changed that much. We know from this episode very quickly that Tom and Shiv have been separated. Um, but uh, Tom is still fucking with Greg. <laughs> There's the uh, you know the gag about you know him screwing his uh, his date in one of the side rooms, getting caught on a, on camera. Something that Tom tells him is like, oh, Logan's got cameras all over the place. But we never see this actually validated. It seems like a ploy to get him to confess this to Logan uh, prematurely. Um, because I don't and think- it's funny because yeah, it's another thing that entertained Logan because he calls him disgusting, but then he makes you know he's Greg says that he smiled a little bit. And then he also makes the gag in the roast about can somebody want to smell Greg's fingers. So yeah, fucking it's, gross. Uh, it's gross, but, but he yeah, it's, he loves it. That's the level that he wants to be he at. He it, wants to yeah. be down in the mud, and Greg gives him opportunities to go there that nobody else will. So I think right. that Greg's going to get let off easy a bit, even if it does open yeah. him up for more abuse. As uh, as Greg said to Carrie, he's an honorary kid, and he kind of earns his stripes in this episode. Yeah, I liked Carrie's response there. Oh, you're an honorary kid. Um, she, she, yeah. Um, but the, uh, yeah, the banter between Tom and Greg, Tom seems to be, uh, you know, a little bit fatigued of it. Greg is like kind of really hopped up and clearly, um, you know, they've been going out a little bit and... You know, if we're to believe what Shiv said, and again, people tend to exaggerate on this show, you know, they're hooking up with people and, you know, going on dates and, and, um, you don't believe it. Yeah. I, I mean, Tom to, Tom to me just looks so fucking depressed. Um, I, maybe, maybe he's had some drunken, like one night stands or whatever, but, um, he looked so sad to me in this episode. And obviously, you know, we'll, we'll get to that final scene. And, and um, he, you know, he wasn't going along with Greg with the disgusting brothers. It seems like 
maybe it was something he coined and then Greg is now running with it and he's sort of appalled that he's running with it. Yeah, the the interpretation I immediately read from that was that like it's it seems like Tom came up with that in a moment of like true just like self-loathing and disgust mm-hmm. like when they're out at some at, maybe at the awful nightclub they were at remember in season yeah. one um, <laughs> trying to pick up women. Tom comes up with this and then Greg says, oh, this is a great nickname and now he's bringing it up all the time and he says, no, it was heavily ironized, Greg. Yeah, heavily ironized. Yeah, it's fun for Greg. Back to but, that, um, that you know. nightclub, something I noticed in this episode is that uh, the only people who enjoy food are Tom and Greg and Logan. Everyone else is uh, just and, drink. And Carl, crucially. Carl, yeah. Carl's a big, big food guy. Everyone else is just drinking bottled water all of the time. When do they eat? Why don't they fly to Switzerland to buy chocolates or whatever? <laughs> like they don't, they don't enjoy life. They, they don't just, enjoy they life. Don't. They really don't. Um, Ken is eating sunflower seeds in this episode. He seems right, to he's be... He's always munching on some bagged gas station Ro- snack to keep from doing Roman heroin. Is all, actually, Roman is actually always munching. He's always snacking. And um, Kieran Culkin has speculated that Roman has an eating disorder. Um, so maybe he just... He doesn't eat meals. And that's why we always see him snacking. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that also is something that we've talked about whenever amazing food is presented in succession, nobody ever eats it. Like think back to the line in the meadow with the Adrian Brody episode and they bring out like this beautiful seafood platter. Nobody even touches it. Uh, summer palace, you know, they got to throw out the lobsters and the ribeyes because, uh, you know, of the stink in the house and they get pizza. But yeah, you're right. Like nobody, uh, nobody is enjoying life in this show. Except for Logan enjoys food a little bit. He gets that hamburger and he loves it. He gets burgers. Yeah. He's, he's, it's the Trump-esque, you know, thing where also, he, he watches ATN all night and eats burgers. At least yeah. he's enjoying something. He called. Uh, yeah. he, he called Kendall over to have that Big Mac dinner back in yes, season one. Yes, that's, that's what I was thinking of. I gotta think yeah. his, his doctor's taking him off the Big Macs. But um, but the, Sorry, but the first I, uh, we see it. I don't remember details that well because I like Pauline Kalet. I've just watched every single episode one time. No notes. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. We can fill you in. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but the first we see of Tom in this episode is him giving Shiv a call while she's in L.A. saying that he wants to give her a heads up that he's met with Naomi Pierce, which is a very interesting comment because, you know, Shiv interprets it as a bit of sexual gamesmanship, which perhaps it is. Mm-hmm. You know, this is Ken's maybe ex at this point. What I got from Naomi's appearance in this episode and the way that Ken talks about her is that they really haven't been in touch since last season. It doesn't really seem like yeah. it seems like since the birthday party, which was the last we saw of Naomi, um, that relationship is kind of flatlined or stagnated. I think it's kind of just fizz. Well, he said something about an endless mind fuck or whatever, which makes me think yeah. that they're like texting and calling and meeting up a lot or not that much, yeah. but just, just enough to be mutually on the line a little bit. So I don't know about X, but perhaps making each other jealous as well, uh, using tabloids and stuff. I mean, that's what that was the issue that that Tom raised here when he called Shiv is that, oh, you might see this in the tabloid. And I just wanted to give you a heads up. Um, and, you know, you're not sure if you believe him, but then he says he ran into somebody called Marlinda, a classic succession name, and that he had to lie and say that it wasn't business. Um, so that does track. So, you know, because. And then, you know, Shiv could put it together a few minutes later that that meant that there's something going on, you know, something afoot with Pierce. 
Right, because the other very interesting thing about that is that whether you interpret that as, you know, Tom trying to make Shiv jealous or not, it could very well be. Um, but it also seems like he's obviously trying to tip her off in some way yeah. about the Pierce deal that Logan is negotiating. So here we see Tom quite typically perhaps sort of playing both sides a little bit where he is on Logan's side trying to make this deal happen, but he's also, you know, dropping breadcrumbs for Shiv to follow, knowing that the siblings are going to pick up on it. Not necessarily because he wants the siblings to beat Logan or something, but like his loyalties are, are split, but, you know, in his kind of typically perhaps cowardly way, he just wants to make sure that he's, you know, he's got a foothold in somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, it's a passive way to throw a kernel to her and we know that they haven't really talked over the course of three months about what happened um we know that from the last scene that um i can't even imagine what their text conversations have been like and um i imagine they both have been basically crying themselves to sleep at night i mean there's been zero reckoning about what happened and um yeah i mean we'll get into that scene in a little bit but um yeah i i just think you know, Tom, maybe just, uh, you know, he wants to talk to her. He wants to, to hear her voice, but he also wants to piss her off a little bit. You know, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of emotions for both of them that are that are clearly being stifled. And, and I cannot possibly imagine just not having a conversation with my husband after something like that for three months. Just you know, you're normal. Yeah. You don't have billionaire yeah. sociopathy <laughs> brain. <laughs> Like, yeah, I just, yeah, Gabby, have you tried a, having like way worse mental illness? Have you tried being illness? less normal? <laughs> it just, it just is so crazy, right, guys? Like, I, I mean, I know it tracks for them, but they just never talked I about think that it. Shiv is actually the most her father's child when it comes yes. to relationships. She has like chronic avoidant attachment issues, and would rather cut something off than be in a position that she views as compromised or look bad or lose power and i think that she even more than her brothers is like cold and cruel her brothers when they do stuff that's cold and cruel it just tears them up inside and they like lose their mind and turn into little babies but she will like cut it off cauterize the wound and walk away she's she's kind of a killer emotionally in a way that and, you know, yeah. of course, whatever's going on inside of her is not good, but she keeps it together a little bit more when she's executing these terrible maneuvers against other people and justifies it to herself way better. She doesn't carry yeah. the guilt that her brothers do about doing all this compromise shit. Like when she talked to that woman who had been raped on the cruises out of testifying, man, that was heartless. That was a classic piece yeah, of shiv. Was... Uh, that was Stuff. probably lowest lowest shiv moment. Oh, I think for me. she can go lower. I think she has in the <laughs> past and I think she will in the future. We shall see. I mean, yeah, maybe we, I mean, maybe we just continue this thread because this is, I think, a priority for us to talk about the the Shiv and Tom stuff in this episode. Um, we can talk about the the actual Pierce deal a little bit further down. Um, but I mean, you know, that's all all that we're talking about that conversation on the phone earlier is sets off these very complicated feelings uh within shiv obviously of jealousy you know shiv is nothing if not a control freak and tom not being in her control is something that's very hard for her to handle so at the end of the episode we get this scene where shiv returns to their penthouse in new york and they have this sort of quiet encounter where tom is clearly like He's been waiting for them to have an opportunity to talk about the issues in their marriage, to talk about his, you know, his betrayal of her. 
Um, and uh, and she doesn't want to do it. She doesn't want to engage. And I mean, I think that, you know, this seems like a little bit of a zag, perhaps on the show's part from a certain angle. But I don't think, I think this is pretty clearly not the last conversation these characters are going to have about their marriage. You know, I think that, as I said last season, Shiv is the character whose arc feels, I think, the most incomplete to me at this point. Because, yes. you know, Marie, what you were just talking about is that, this is a character who has just world-class kind of coping mechanisms and cognitive dissonance. And, you know, I think of the show as, if we look at the show as like, you know, the twin to sort of comedy and tragedy as two sides of the same coin, the way that like the British writers conceive of it, the way that Armstrong conceives of it, the things that it builds towards for all these characters, the moment of catharsis, you know, it's not necessarily some disaster, but there has to be some moment of kind of recognition. And I don't think that for Shiv, she's ever totally been forced to confront exactly who she is and what's wrong with her um and that's something i think that has to happen before the end of the series and tom has and tom is the person who is going to be the catalyst yes. for that because tom's she, the only one who can't yes he's the be, only one yeah because he is she is suppressing the most stuff well the most stuff about him that's what's causing her to kind of you know again we talked about a lot of snook's reactions seems like she's unraveling a bit in this episode she's not in control as she this has is, been yeah. in the past this is absolutely the most vulnerable we've seen her, especially, I mean, we've hardly ever seen her display any sort of insecurity in a romantic or sexual context. And the jealousy that she exhibits over the disgusting brother stuff is really like some of the, the you know, most raw and vulnerable that she's ever allowed herself to be. Um, you see the rage there. Uh, you see it in her face. Uh, Snook, I think, did an amazing job. I and mean, we're always talking about her facial expressions, but um, she really stood out to me in this scene. And once again, her attempts to exert control have failed. And, um, you know, I, I'm sort of wary of people trying to assign blame. I see it online, like, well, um, you know, Tom used Shiv for career furtherment, and but Shiv, you know, asked for an open relationship on their wedding night, which uh, is hilarious, by both, the way. Of course, that was going to blow just, up in her face. Like the Reddit update on that two years yeah. later, I asked my husband I mean, for an open relationship <laughs> on our wedding night, and now he and asshole. his cousin refer to themselves as the disgusting brothers. It's it's absolutely deranged, you know, but. But Tom still accepted the arrangement, and he never pushed well, he her on it. He accepted the really. arrangement because she was always in a position of power over him. She created was... a very, very high pressure sales situation there. She did that I, on purpose. Agree, That's but... how she operates. I don't have any quote. First of all, let's just talk about audience identification. I don't have any for any character. I know they're not real. Like any in anything that I watch, they're dramatic constructs meant to like further the themes and purpose of the work. So like her not you know she's not a real person and i don't sympathize with her or like think that she's good or anything i do think the way in which she's used to kind of i think she's the show's vessel for uh like you mentioned one of you mentioned before cognitive dissonance complicity kind of um the narration that people have about themselves where they're still a good person self-justification she's the character where we see all of those themes kind of play out in this great drama that she eventually is going to lose control of. I I mean, I do have some sympathy for Shiv. I have sympathy for all the kids, um, you know, just for reasons I've spoken about before. Uh, It's it's hard to have sympathy for her in this relationship. It's been hard because 
uh, it was just so deranged what she did to Tom on the wedding night. Again, I don't think the idea of an open relationship. And is I don't something think she pass, wanted an open relationship. I think she wanted to justify really, the affair yeah. she was already having, which Tom ended. Tom, you know, won up to her there. He ended that relationship that evening, and now she's stuck in a position where she's technically in an open marriage from day one not having the affair that she had wanted to have originally that she was having at the time and i think that if you asked her would you go if that affair with that other staffer had never happened and you didn't even know him would you still want to have an open relationship with tom her answer might be no yeah, I mean, I don't think she particularly enjoyed any of the affairs she had that much. She liked the the power and control that it gave her in the, in the sense that, um, you know, she was the dominant one and in the relationship. She was having like a classic regular affair, affair classic at the time. And the open marriage thing was her way of forcing Tom to basically consent to it at the time. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he was strong armed into it. I do think Tom is a coward, and I do think there were times that he could have confronted her um, in a more assertive way. I think I, he's I, trying I to, and she's saying, "I don't want to hear it because it'll hurt me." Clear, c- clearly, now he, now he is. Um, now he, you know, he is asked three times in this episode for her. You know, does she want to talk about it? And she says, you know, well, I think it's going to hurt me to get into all of I that. I love when people and use therapy speak to justify their monstrous yeah. behavior. She's another master at this. Like, I don't think it'll be good for me to hear that right. Yeah, it won't feel good. No shit. Yeah. Take your medicine. Yeah, exactly. It reminded me of, uh, you know, in the season one finale when she asks for the open relationship and she, you know, makes that speech about love being a million different things. It's fear and jealousy. Um, which are the things that she's, you know, the emotions she's displaying? Why would she here? bring up negative um, emotions? It's very, it's she's very much her father's daughter in that way. Like love is, so much and then lists daughter, a bunch yeah. of negative conflict oriented yeah. emotions. She called it the the box box set death march marriage, monogamous marriage, and she imagined she imagined that this arrangement and Tom's desire to stay close to the business both would keep her protected and 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 keep keep him around and this is like the one area of her life that she constructed to keep herself safe and now it's entirely out of her hands and that kind of anger is so scary for her anger is a terrifying of emotion and i think if she faces um the anger she has you know towards tom and the emotion she has towards tom and her relationship it's going to spill out um if she's emotionally honest at all it will there will be anger at Tom, but there will be anger at her parents. There will be anger at herself. And I don't think that she, I literally don't think that she can tolerate Probably that. And I think not. maybe it will, it will, it, it will be interesting to see if the floodgates open and Shiv has a real well, anger you know, is a, emo- emotional breakdown. Anger is a secondary emotion that's related to loss of control. And yes. she's getting angry because she's losing control of Tom, who is the person that she thought was very, I mean, yes, he, has a dick like a giant sequoia and fucks like a bullet train as he said to greg but he's someone that she viewed as being malleable and controllable he's her dog yes she's very manipulative and yeah. she's and there's some safety i mean she's so much like logan in this way she loves having somebody around that she can depend on to abuse the the thing i will say about sympathy for shiv because this is a subject that i've wrestled with a lot because you know, I think, Marie, you're very right when you call out the ways in which she is one of the most directly manipulative and perhaps, 
you know, if you want to say who's the most evil character on the show, I, th- I saw some people talking about this online this week. She's a fine candidate for that. I also think that some of the criticism she gets comes in a lot from, you know, just sort of basic sexism towards TV characters a lot of the time. That is a pitfall that people fall into. But it's definitely it's definitely valid with Shiv. And the thing that is humanizing to me about her, the thing that makes her, uh, you know, sympathetic, whatever you want to call it, is that the the arc of the show in which she gets closer to her father over time and you know sort of binds herself closer to the family business over time in a lot of ways this is not just her seeking control or responding to this loss of control with tom it's a suppression of her guilt over what she's been doing to him the entire time you know that is the humanizing thing to me about shiv is that she clearly feels and is suppressing actively with everything in her power the guilt that she feels for having betrayed Tom in the first place. And that's why the open relationship is really a way to sort of like retroactively lawyer and justify what she's already done. Yeah, and and that's her whole deal all the time. The fact that she is in in season three, that she seems to be running so far away from Tom, that she seems so distant from him throughout that season, that she seems to be almost wanting him to go to prison is, I think, in large part because of that confrontation on the beach, which is as close as Shiv has come to a moment of recognition and of confronting, Mm -hmm. you know, how much pain she's capable of causing somebody um, who actually does love her Um, as weak and cowardly as Tom is. He is somebody who does love her and she hurt him for no reason. Uh, and, And that is and that's something that she just can't confront. And she runs very far from it. And she binds herself closer to the company to like, you know, give give herself more power, give herself more control. And, you know, that line in season three where she says, you know, we don't get embarrassed about that sort of conservative ethos Mm. of reaction that defines ATN, that defines Logan personally. That's something that she wants to use as a weapon. And it's uh, pretty telling in season four what that looks like when she no longer has that. I think that I, uh, you know, I'm not a reactionary anti-feminist. I'm holding Shiv to a higher standard here because I think she's one of the more powerful characters on the show. She has more agency, I think, um, and that maybe does make her more evil and that she's more culpable for a lot of her actions and she tries harder to justify them. Uh, I'm reminded of that great episode where Carmela Soprano goes to therapy and the therapist tells her mm-hmm. that everything she has is built on blood money and the only moral thing she could do is leave Tony and change her name. And then she just says, ah, therapy's not for me. <laughs> it's like the only time anyone ever told her the truth, the real truth right. about her lifestyle and she didn't want to hear it. And Shiv, when Shiv said, she can't yeah, it, Shiv yeah. didn't want to hear that about herself. But like... Shiv is the Michael, you know, the Michael Corleone. Like, Kendall is led around by the nose all the time. He's got all these problems. Roman loves the dog pound. Connor is Fredo. But (laughs) Shiv is Michael. She starts out by, in season one, specifically distancing herself from all of the things that her family does politically and culturally. And then she gets more and more involved and finds herself to be competent at it. And I think is the character, again, I think that she's the most like Logan in how she deals with her emotional attachments. And I think she's capable of the the real, the shiving, if you will, the finishing yeah. moves that her brothers harm, yeah. maybe aren't. Uh, so she's kind of, and she's wrestling with also being one of the smarter characters. She kind of knows this and her big brain has to work overtime to compartmentalize all these things and make herself seem like she's a good person. Uh, but that's you know that's the difference between her and 
and her brothers at least for me they're kind of clowns compared to her yeah again it's yeah i'm just noting again that that arc of the entire series where she starts out being kind of outside the family business and comes in closer to it again that's paralleled by her relationship with tom because becoming formalized because you know when she marries tom she also sort of marries into the family right she, she does actually back into her family company and yeah. like and, and she and she she gets worse and she gets sicker i mean in, in season one when she's doing her own thing i mean she seems to be a little bit better off mentally their relationship while she you know is kind of addicted to him sometimes seems stronger um and she you know, takes again, her political close. stuff seriously when she's working for she, her she father's does yes and she's doing so maybe a bit ineffectually she, i think deep down she knows that she and the Democrats she works for are losers. Um, but yeah, but she wants something to feel proud about. She, she really yeah, does. I think maybe um, she does maybe believe in it a little bit, but that definitely evaporates over time. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just it's hard for me not to have sympathy for her when I look at Logan's cruelty. I look at Caroline's cruelty and I think about, um, you know, what she what she had to deal with growing up as the only girl in her house um again you know it it doesn't make me think that uh she should be exonerated for this but but um every minute that they don't give away all of their billions is like equal to a thousand lifetimes of burning in hell in terms of evilness so like on the on the scale of absolute badness they're all at either a zero or a ten depending on where you place either end yes i mean again this idea of sympathy and i don't these are words that are quite malleable and uh i think uh you know on one end of the spectrum you have people who think kendall is their baby girl or whatever their little meow meow um and he's so on the other sad side. he's just like really <laughs> sad and he's a sad like i think i i my, my my position is always just that i think the show works much better if you can locate some recognizable humanity in these characters which i think the writers are very good at doing it doesn't mean you yes. have to like them or think that you know they're going to enter their father's house justified uh, i don't think that's uh, i don't think that's in the cards yeah 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 no, definitely not. I mean, unless, of course, you're not a Catholic, in which case you believe that the grace of God is sufficient <laughs> for even the, the Roy family. Yeah, and, and, and Snook is good at eliciting that sympathy when they're sitting on the bed facing opposite directions and Tom asks if he should go. She makes a face that's just absolutely gutting. Well, um, you want to talk and... about grace? It's almost like she does have real love for him. And their marriage and their love for each other. It's like this little spark of real humanity that's fighting against the iron cage of all of the evilness of their wealth and power. Exactly. Like if they could just be normal and have a regular marriage, (laughs) they can maybe be redeemed. But that spark's just going to get extinguished. I, I wrote in my notes that a lot of couples who are on the precipice of divorce or who are just, you know, living their lives unhappy are, are miserable 24-7 and you see it in their faces. And, and there was a lot of, you know, darkness in this relationship. Um, but, you know, from season one, from the beginning and as recently as uh, Chianti share where they're both, you know, having a laugh at Greg, you, you see them having fun together and being intimate. I don't think this is a matter of incom- fundamental incompatibility. I think... Um, the mistakes that they each made and and, and uh, the relationship falling apart is just yeah it's more revealing of their own individual pathologies and their um, you know enmeshment with the with 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 the company and in a way their relationship I mean it is the show um, 
Yeah, I mean, this is they could be the happy. corrosive they element. They could buy an of, island yeah, they, and they, they could, could throw it all away and they could have a nice life together and really enjoy each just other. Just leave. They would, yeah. but they won't. Just, just leave. That's like what you, you know, um, it's what you say about every mob movie. When the character, when the mm-hmm. main character who's rising higher in the mob and losing more of usually his humanity, you say, oh, just walk away, just leave. And, you know, Shiv and Tom kind of, you see that option a little bit faintly in the air in this last scene one of the discussions one of the discussions they have uh, i don't know if it's their wedding or if it's the night before their wedding um somebody brings up like let's just move to i think it's shiv who says like let's just or or maybe it's tom let's just move to new zealand and like become sheep farmers yes because they want that a little bit and they know that it they they could be like real human being happy but they'll not do it I don't. They, they won't. Yeah, I yeah. kind of disagree with that. I don't actually think that they could be happy in a con. I don't think this marriage works in a context outside of one where they're constantly playing power games with each other. I think the thing that's implied about this relationship is at least they're extremely compatible sexually, because as we've talked about, that's a huge part of Shiv's sort of like self-image and her sense of self-worth. Um, I think it is from Tom's too, <laughs> judging from some of the things. Well, it was sad that Tom had to, had to had to ask at the end. I can try to make love to you. Uh, the insinuation there for me was that he's very depressed and it might be hard for him to perform it's probably like medicated out the ears too exactly but i I think they have more than sexual compatibility i think that they have a a sense of a shared sense of humor um and and real care for each other but again yeah have fun because tom knows how to have fun and she does not and I think that yes. the times when we see her letting loose a tiny bit is, you know, with, at his urging. Like he can, the stuff that he, he does with Greg, I could see him doing with Shiv in the early days of their relationship. Like taking her out to a fun night spot and teaching her to let loose a little bit. He's got this sort of, you know, manic pixie dream boy energy in terms of uh, <laughs> setting up a good date. He just is forced to spend all that energy on Greg at this point in his life. Right. And I know that based on what I've read, there is a conversation about their early relationship that they have um, that apparently is, is quite devastating. So it will be interesting. I am interested to, to get learn to that. But I don't think this was the real post. No, they're going to talk more. Yeah. I mean, I every time somebody says like, oh, yeah. this is our last conversation yeah, in the this, breakup. This, this couldn't be like, the real post. Cut to three yeah, months no later way. when you're screaming on the phone at 3 a.m. You know, like there's. There's going to be war between them. But I think that at this point, it was really important for Shiv to specifically deny Tom's request to talk now. And when they do talk, it'll be at a time of her choosing that'll probably be quite inconvenient for him. Yes, I, I imagine it won't go that smoothly. Um, but whenever yeah, that, it's going to uh, be. Whenever that particular train derails for Shiv, that's when they're going to have that conversation. But Brendan, you're right. Like this is this is what's necessary for her arc to finish the show. Like we need to see her have a real moment, maybe of just like full on breaking down and and contending with everything she's been holding in. Maybe she won't. Uh, maybe it'll manifest in a different way. But um, I, I think this is going to be a big shiv season. Um, I'm excited. She's a wonderful actress and character, and we've kind of seen like the other siblings sort of rise and fall. You know, go through this whole thing, flame out. We haven't really seen that with her yeah. yet. Not quite. It's yeah. like, um, um, yeah, I was, no, go, go on. I was going to talk about no, how no. Uh, that scene in season two, I thought was at the very beginning of season two, when they all go into Logan's office and he eventually offers her the CEO job. Um, I 
felt like all of that never really quite paid off yet. The uh, idea no. that she was being given the inheritance and then it was sort of taken away from her because he was indecisive and he didn't like how she talked about it to the Pierces. Um, but right. it never like yeah, I mean, I mean, resolved she, she, really uh, that she was the chosen one, at least briefly. And she was deeply hurt by that. I mean, deeply, deeply hurt. Um, speaking of the Pierces, do we want to talk oh, yeah, a little talk bit about, about this? The uh, I think actually yeah, here's we're... a segue. One one motive for Shiv, and this is again, I think, the thing that she maybe wants in her human being heart versus the thing that she's actually going to do in the world in which she inhabits. Uh, she assures Nan Pierce that she's getting a divorce from Tom. And part of right. her and finality on that matter is career motivated. Yeah, she clearly hasn't told her siblings. Kendall, you know, looks at her like, what the fuck? Um, she said that in the moment to, to uh, you know, to further the deal. Um, yeah, I mean, she, she, sorry, that's it. No, it's, well, let's <laughs> talk about the deal. I mean, we, we mentioned yeah. earlier yeah. that they go to this house, the Pierce house, one of the Pierce yeah, houses. Yeah, so I'll talk... You want to talk about the? Should yeah, I talk? Re- tell I'll us talk, about it. I'll Please. talk really quickly about the Nan Pierce Estate. It's the Peabody Estate in Santa Barbara, and specifically Montecito, also known as Villa Solana. Um, so this estate was built in 1914 by architect Francis T. Underhill, and executive Frederick Forrest Peabody was. Uh, it was formerly home to the Center for Democratic Institutions think tank. CIA um, think tank. Yeah, so, you know, very... Just a liberal um, interventionist, you know, West Coast. Deep, deep state, state liberal hub. old money, yeah. So visited by leaders like JFK, Henry Kissinger, during its years of operation from 1958 to 1978. In 2020, it was sold to Eric Schmidt, former Google CEO, for 30.8 million the property includes 11 acres of land sitting on a hilltop with both ocean and mountain views and, i love uh, those yeah, it was pretty like, impressive those early california robber baron capitalists who built estates like that in 1914 uh, those are all really uh if you have a book about interesting, that interesting i just send just it my interesting way awful places you know like the getty villa and <laughs> All those yeah. places like that, and and the Getty Villa, the Getty Villa has been mentioned in Succession before. It's part of. Oh, Canada. really? Logan had a, Logan had a, a party there, and he served warm white wine and thought that Plato was one of the Marx brothers, and the Pierces uh, wrote a hit piece on it on him, and that's part of the oh. reason why he. Hates wow, the that's that's good backstory <laughs> for this because the Pierces are you know back where they belong in their California blood. I like I really like the conflict with the Pierces at least. Oh, it's so fun. Logan yeah, we should have had you on for Turnhaven. honest <laughs> about being evil. Whereas the Pierces are like, oh, money is so vulgar. I don't need, I don't want to touch it with my hands. Or like, isn't it awful oh, yeah. how much money we have? And Logan is. <laughs> this is disgusting. Yeah, Logan is honest <laughs> about being a liar and a killer and not having values in the same way i think that and 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 wanting more more wanting more money like here nan is executing this deal where she clearly wants she's the, so good the at it too. Money. she juices it up like an extra three yeah. billion dollars by pretending that talking about money is unspeakably painful to her <laughs> yeah people are people are yeah. offering her billions of dollars and she's going oh i don't like this you know people keep oh, saying no. numbers i, I f- I feel like Possibly. I'm in the middle of a bidding war. Yeah, because you fucking What's, are. Uh, my favorite line of the episode was actually eight, nine, 
what comes next? What could <laughs> And Roman nine uh, B, <laughs> he's so funny. Roman, who, Roman, who clearly, either. yeah, has the, has the least patience for what's happening there. Um, you know, I always like. I just, I always yeah, like, I, I always like the way that this, I always yeah. like the way that Ken handles those negotiations where he's where Nan's like, oh, I don't even want to hear a number, and Ken's like, sure, sure. Shall I just say the number? Um, I always, yeah. I always yeah, like Roman the way that he plays like, that. Like sure, he's sure. a little bit too blunt when it comes, like the kids in how they approach business deals is really interesting to me. Like. Candle's a little bit too blunt. Roman seems to have pretty good business instincts. He does. Uh, I think that he's probably right that they went too high, but he's just too conflict avoidant to actually get his way. Yeah, I don't know how they're going to cobble that money together, but that's, I think, where Stu comes in, right, Yeah, they're going to end up taking on, they're going to end up taking on debt, and they're going to end up taking on a partner of some kind that they can't trust. And, uh, First of all, I I did actually look up a plot point from before because I wanted to remember like what had happened in season two with the Pierces, and they mm-hmm. were talking about acquiring PGN for more than twice as much money. So what yep. what the right. hell yep. happened to PGN? They're worth less than half Whoops. the amount that they were before, and now the the yes. Roy's want to buy the like this like distressed junker. For what? Well, less than half. It was it was twenty five billion that Logan offered her. And what what happened two. that it's now ten? Well, like, he was they, also wow. he was also goosing that number way up above what it was worth. Sure, yeah, he yeah, was, yeah, He yeah. was trying to get it to a stupid number so they so that he could get Raya on his side. But yeah, I I, I forget who said this line. I, I didn't clock it at first. Uh, but the line where someone says like, "Oh, you know, the left is after them now." Um, and regarding yes, PJ, yes, which is yes, which yeah. is very funny, echoing you know perennial conflicts with the the New York Times, right? The New York Times um, is right. a conservative bastion to me. Yeah, so <laughs> I mean that's that tells like, you everything about the Pierces, right? Well, like the Pierces, like right. they live at this, you know, uh, Kennedy Kissinger compound. Their mainstream media probably is getting its foreign policy talking points directly from the Pentagon. I'm sure that the criticism of them from the left is entirely justified. I mean, they're liberal in comparison to the Roys, right? I mean, like, the actual comparison, too, in this context is, like, not actually the Times, but, you know, Murdoch's acquisition of the Wall Street Journal. Um, again, not exactly a liberal bastion even before Murdoch took it over, in the right? World. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, my favorite uh, detail from this, you know, we only get a little bit of Nan. And by the way, I think um, every episode we're going to have to be asking ourselves, is this the last time we're going to see certain supporting players? I don't think we had to see Nan Pierce again. I'm pretty sure this is probably the last time we're going to see her i wouldn't be surprised if this is the last time we see naomi pierce either but that detail where nan says that would you like these bottles of wine because i only drink hypermarche von ordinaire which is french supermarket <laughs> wine supermarket wine an, an incredibly <laughs> elaborate way of saying like oh, i'm just a simple person that drinks well, supermarket wine but it also has to be french she's ina garten right yeah. she's styled like ina garten and she's talking about a product that ina garten would have had in stock at her original barefoot contessa food import store in the hamptons like it's so much She's yeah, so much higher. Like it's it's hilarious to be. It's uh Nan Pierce is the heiress to the Pierce fortune, right? She's not like a wife that married in. Yeah, no, I think she's an heir from her her father, um, because the rest of them are cousins. So you know, it's not like she's a generation uh, above removed from them. Something that occurred to me is Nan's real name Naomi. 
Um, I don't know. It could be Hannah. Like, like, is... like they're both Naomi? I don't think so. I thought that might have been an explanation for why perhaps Nan is so fond of Naomi. Perhaps there's sort of like some sort of like namesake relationship there. I think she just likes her, but maybe. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Maybe. That was just something that occurred to me. Because um, I don't think Nan, I don't think is her real name, obviously. Well, and she, it's funny because she also drops that like uh, members of one of her member one of her family members is going through a divorce. Another one had a, an accident in Maine, which was so funny because I, I Chappaquiddick type <laughs> the accident. Gwyneth, the Gwyneth Paltrow thing that's going on right now in oh, my yeah. mind, I just like trans I transpose the word ski accident onto that they text have skiing in, in, Maine. The, in the in the scripts. Yeah, maybe, maybe it, it is be, a skiing so accident. Like, and like like Brendan said, rich people be skiing and killing people and killing themselves. So, um, yeah, I, I think the Pierces are, are struggling. And then she said something about the estate, you know, uh, costing her a lot of money. So, um, yeah, I mean, they're they're taking this much lesser deal from from not that long ago. Uh, I, I yeah, think I mean, that the... the Roy kids will they will come to regret it. Uh, I think that Kendall is basically right. And he's usually not Kendall Roman. Roman has been proven right Roman. several times when he's expressed misgivings about something business wise. Yeah, Roman, just... Roman, Roman said, "Why are we doing this? Let's get some snowmobiles." Which is like, again, you know, they're <laughs> they're fucking horrible and should be giving that money away. But he has a point. Like, yeah. why do you why do you guys care? Although so I much? don't think that the uh, hundred is exactly a winner either. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> oh my god. I guess we could, I guess we could talk about the hundred. Um, there are certain people who are listening to this podcast who are like, why do they take so fucking long to talk about the funny stuff in the episode? So we can talk about. Yeah. So we could we could we spend so much time talking about psychosexual gamesmanship and you know depression and no time talking about the actual jokes. Yeah, more, because more, like the actual jokes, you can watch the episode and get the, the, they're right there. You yeah, can't really improve yeah, upon exactly. them. They're it's, excellent. I'm always yeah, wary there's not much, of, wary not much of doing to add the, uh, about the hundred, but wary of doing the the Chris Farley show thing. Like, remember when Kendall but made Brendan... that joke? That was awesome. <laughs> Brendan, you have a an interesting take on the hundred. I, I saw here. <laughs> I, I wrote quite a lot about this. I don't really know why. I just thought about this and just started getting really annoyed the more I thought about it. Um, yeah, just the yeah the hundred, which is the siblings' goofy idea for a start. This is obviously just like this is a big just like fat softball like t- for the succession writers, right? Like this is this is just right in their backyard to make jokes about the media landscape. Um, yeah, you know this. Uh, I you know the fact that they're like practicing their pitch in front of their their banker character's name. What is this name? Talus. 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 Yeah. Which, again. Harvard Business. Where did they get their like, names like, on this show? Like, honestly. Like, like Comfrey and Marlinda, just hilarious. They must names. have so much fun with it. Yeah. yeah. They must have so much fun with it. But he's there. He's there. Like he's their banker character who looks kind of like Billy Magnuson, but he's like playing the same role as uh, as uh, Danny Houston Laird in season two. Uh, where he's basically just telling them things, telling them that it's okay to do things that they already know that they're going to do. Um, but they're practicing, you know, a pitch so they can set up financing with what's implied to be like Middle Eastern oil money. Um, but I guess the idea behind the hundred, what does they say? It's like Substack It's tasty morsels from groovy hubs. Tasty morsels yeah, from groovy hubs. Yeah, he stops just short of actually saying that line again, which is the line that... Uh, um, Roman said uh, to Lawrence Yee when he was pretty much just like spinning off the dome about what his plans for Waystar were trying to sound like he knew what he was talking about uh, I'm dumb but I'm smart yeah. uh, was what Roman said but yeah I mean like it's this it's, it it's like all these a, other imagining what it would actually be is it a subscription newsletter that also has its own app 
and the idea is that you get news digest from curated writers but the here's the thing both sides of the aisle conservative and liberal voices yeah, I'm sure it's something like that. And the thing is that like several versions of this exist, right? I mean, like the, I think the the idea that it's called the hundred because it's like the hundredth greatest experts and you know whatever he says like AI Michelin star restaurants dot dot dot. You know, people spe- Israel Palestine. Yeah, the idea that like okay, so our thing is we just have a lot of startup capital, so we're just going to you know pay a bunch of writers big checks to come and write for us, and then inevitably the thing is not going to make that back in subscriptions. So they're probably going to spiral out in like eighteen months, but whatever. Yes, eighteen months. Nice. This was well, the figure that Caleb mentioned as well as somebody who's worked for two or three of these for exactly yeah. that long. It'll be it'll be nice while yeah, it lasts. Right. You know, call it like your Aussie media. I actually subscribe to one of these. I will yeah, cop tell to us it. about that. What is Puck? Please pitch Puck is, us. I, I don't know. It's it's one of these. I don't know. I, don't, I forget who actually runs it, but they just like they have all these different verticals, like a bunch of writers who I find loathsome. Um, I may I just read the entertainment coverage from Matt Bellany, who is the former editor of the uh, the Hollywood Reporter. Um, you know, he's a connected Hollywood guy. He gets spun pretty hard on a lot of stuff, but they have like interesting analytics and things like that. And I actually have gotten some like succession news through there, so it's a uh, not a not a terrible use of a, like an eight dollar subscription. Or whatever. But the point is, the thing that was really annoying me about this, the more I thought about it, was because the episode is asking us to compare this to ATN, I think. Not overtly, but like that's the parallel that's being drawn, right? Because ATN is such a big part of this season. Like, as journalistic ventures, like, what are these? Basically, you know, ATN is this entity where it, you know, it is, it's an evil organization, you know? Uh, but like, com- but like in terms of what it is, it's like at least like a sort of mirror version of what journalism is supposed to be, right? Like it's oppositional in certain senses. They have their enemies, right? Their enemies are everything good, uh, but they have enemies. You know, they're they are in their in their way afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. Whereas something like the hundred is just access journalism, and it's just sort of mm-hmm. like optimizing, you know, the alienation of people with disposable income, you know, me included, right? So like what, it, you know, is, 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 is that like anything worth doing? Is, is, no. is anybody going to get anything out of that but besides like, they need you know, to try. turning like yeah. a small profit for a few months? I mean, No, they won't, yeah, and they won't turn a profit either that. because they, they loaded up on debt just to start it. But the reason that they want to start, like all these legacy companies, they want to break into new media because the... Uh, the barriers to entry for old media are insurmountable even if they're already in them i wrote this down in our notes but uh first of all atn if it's fox news um is a winner and everyone else is a loser among news channels uh the first nine of the top 10 rated cable news shows are fox news and 14 or 13 out of the top 15 top-rated cable news shows are Fox News, so everybody else might as well not even be playing. Uh, and wow. then outside of cable... Brennan, you're scowling so much, but it's just the, it's the truth. <laughs> it's the, tr- it's the truth. Uh, and outside of cable news, just forget about that. You know, we're talking about a TV show. Um, if you take a big pie chart of what people watch, it's part of the sliver that's other... And everything else is sports. So (laughs) the media landscape is basically sports and then also ran. And uh, in also ran, it's Fox News and other 
or like you know American Idol and a handful of other really popular reality shows um but the world of sports is actually like kind of difficult because it makes the most money but actually the licensing deals for running the leagues um on your sports network are getting bigger and bigger I don't know if either of you have been following this news but Yep, yep. If you want to be in media, you need to be ponying up billions and billions of dollars just for one night of football a week, you know? And that's why we're getting this increasingly fragmented world where Amazon Prime has some NFL, but also CBS and NBC or whatever have some NFL, uh, and they're paying so much money to do that. And it's really difficult to... I mean, it's the only thing that makes money, but when it costs so much just to play, it's hard to see a return on that investment versus, hey, I might as well throw a measly $1 billion at starting a new media venture uh, because if that works, I'll be making a lot of money that I could use to offset my investment in the NFL and Major League Soccer. Just a just a thought. Like, they... Yeah. Talking yeah, about new media is very such... funny, but potentially it has bigger returns and they can't not try because old media, the uh, the stakes are very high and the playing field is so aggressively demarcated already. Kind of. I just read that like in the way that they talk about this, like the fact that he compares it to like Masterclass and Substack. I mean, those, these are subscription services, right? They're all selling subscription tiers. And the audience for this kind of thing is just definitionally so limited, right? Yeah, like but the people like... who have disposable income to buy a subscription to this kind of thing, and the people who are going to be interested in it in the first place. I, I just, I don't but know. But it's also it's very stupid like... to plug a ton of money into what's basically a Substack because the reason people do Substack is because hey, if I'm myself or uh, if I'm even Barry Weiss, I can run a pretty profitable business with pretty low overhead. But they're going into this idea of like, what if I made a sub stack, just one sub stack, and my overhead was 1,000 times higher than people who do this profitably? Yeah, because that's the only thing that separates them in the market, right? Is the fact that they have stupid money and are willing to spend it. There's like, there's nothing else that they have that's like unique. And again, there's no other reason anybody would come write for them. Yeah, I, well, they'll they'll pay people to come write for them by enticing them with really high salaries for their names, and those people will be like, "All right, I'm not doing anything. I'll take this for 18 months until you guys fold." And um, yeah. If anyone would like to reach out to my husband, Caleb Horton, with such an opportunity, he is looking. He's done it before, and he's done so very well. Uh, best wishes to Caleb. Great writer. One of my favorites for a long time. I'll, I'll pass that along. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's kind of understandable why all these big companies would want to spend a lot of money to break into quote-unquote new media, and it's also like obvious that they will fail. So it's it's... It's fun to see that on the show. Yeah. It was funny when Roman said, literally, how has nobody else thought of this before? It's the best idea ever. That's my yeah, other they, favorite they had, thing. Yeah, them all joking around, like, yeah, him saying, my only problem is, is it literally too good? Right? And then the, and then when Ked and Shiv are like, when, as soon as the Pierce ideas floated, they're immediately like, fuck the hundred? Like, what if we don't yeah. do well, this? Well, Shiv was never, I don't think she was ever into it, because she, it's not... I don't think it's the scale at which she wants to to play. She wants to be doing like politics yeah. or real she, corporate power. She said she wants something bigger. And uh, her brothers, I think, want to be disruptors. They're not. They're not after seizing the real crown the way that she is. Again, I. 
I respect I respect the hell out of her, I think, in a way. She's the most powerful of the siblings, but she's also the most evil. Just don't want it out there that yeah, I'm I mean, this, this reactionary <laughs> anti-feminist who hates female characters on TV. I mean, that's what we have you as in the show description, so. That's how you'll introduce me. Yeah. And, and I mean, Kendall, I think he just needs something to do, right? Like, he's, he talks in this episode early on, you know, he says, I've tried horse, heroin, uh, need something super absorbing in my life, and if this isn't it, you know, I, I No, he's know. just going to go back um, to heroin. So, by saying that yeah, I mean, he's admitting the- that he's going to go back <laughs> yes we don't know about ken sobriety he appears to be sober um sounds like he's been going to meetings therapy just on you know the way that he's been talking um in this episode although we don't get that much from him um he's he seems a little bit more clear-headed than usual i mean some of that has to do with the fact that he you know has had this uh, absolution and now he's spending time with his siblings who are the two people he confessed to and um you know i, I think roman and ken specifically like they want to be they want to be close they want the three of them to be close shiv cares less um but but they're all you know it, it's all very unsteady footing roman can easily be swayed back into dad's arms um, you know, Kendall has his own host of issues. So, um, yeah, I don't know. We didn't get that much. Uh, this was, you know, pretty much a, was a heavy Logan, Tom Shiv episode. Um, the boys, we, uh, you know, we're still waiting to see where, what, where it's going. But there's, there's definitely been some speculation that something major is going to happen with Roman. I don't know if that speculation is happening anywhere besides our, our texts, but I mean, yes. No, it, it, it's happening other places. Well, okay. I don't think yeah. they ever really resolved the uh, the Roman, Jerry, dick pic, Logan thing. They, I think something with Roman and Jerry. I, I don't think up, that's over. You know? I think that we will see them interact again and we'll see some kind of fallout or repercussion from that, that incident that is beyond what we've seen already. Yeah, I mean, Jerry, certainly, the little we see of her in this episode, she's very cagey, um, still trying to figure out how where she stands with Logan, because she hasn't been fired, but this is not a good thing for, for their professional relationship. I think she's kind of on probation, um, and yes. Logan is sort of looking for a new purported successor that's not his kids, which is just him, you know, lying to himself. Uh, but it's definitely not in that room that he was in right. doing the roast. Yeah, and Carl briefly says that he's getting out, that he's leaving. So I, I don't know what was going on there. Um, could have just been bluster. But um, do we want to talk about uh, Connor and Willa real quick? Yeah, I think, sure. Yeah. I like her Fox News hair. <laughs> I'm interested to see what happens. I like seeing her make compromises over and over. Her entire thing is just mentally calculating what the next level down is for her and whether she's okay going there. Um, I think actually yeah, the funniest line for me was Nan Pierce's eight, nine, what comes next. But second funniest was Willa saying, I always wanted a nice wedding. <laughs> yeah. Not a, not bump, bum bum fights and confetti. These are wired. Just... A big brass band. <laughs> not even a little bit of hoopla, just a little bit of hoopla. Um, I love, I, yeah. I mean, my favorite, one of my favorite line deliveries in the episode is when Connor's asking Willa is like, is a hundred million dollars. That's like a lot. Right. And she goes, yeah, but I mean, you'd still be rich, right? 
And he goes, yeah, like less a hundred million, you know, because you never really think that like, you know, you're, she's with somebody like Connor who, you know, has billions on paper. You never really think that he can spend enough to like actually jeopardize that. But uh, Connor has found the one avenue where you could actually burn <laughs> a lot of capital on a, on a boondoggle presidential run. And he's, uh, he's looking for ways out of that. What realistically do you think is the best outcome for Connor? Because of course he's not going to win and he's not even going to like get into the mix in terms of the elite eight or the final four. He might get on the first debate stage, but coming out of that, what's the best outcome that he could hope for? Well, I mean, I think the implication is that we're like a week away from the actual general. Election. Really? I didn't, I didn't um, get that. Yeah. Yeah, because it's been like months since it's been months since the finale, which was in like you know that was and that was said to be May. I think we were, it was, but it, it was, was it, it was episode was that an election ep- year? Episode six, three oh six. Yes. episode three oh six was six months out from the election. Yeah, they talked so. about yeah they talked about it and what it takes in the in the political episode. Um, that was why the that was why the the POTUS stepping down was such a disaster for the for the Republicans in that context because it was an election year. Mm-hmm. So they were scrambling okay, to try to so fix it because because the primaries had already passed. Um, okay. So yeah, it's like so yeah we're very we're very late into this. So Connor basically is just looking at like I just don't want to finish below one percent you know on on CNN or whatever. I don't I want I want there to be a, a nice round one percent next to my name when the returns come in basically well he's um, what so is he, he doing at his dad's birthday party instead of campaigning <laughs> clearly didn't put in the well, work i guess i guess you could argue that is campaigning in a sense you know if there are like power players there who might be there you know spurred the, to place some advice but they weren't it's kind of funny to get married four days before the election that year i know it's like actually too it's <laughs> too late in the game win. to capitalize on earned media even from the most insane wedding of all time <laughs> It just makes you seem like more well, of a yeah, clown. And, and and the wedding is episode three, and that's the episode with the 30-minute shot, Brendan. Is it a real one, that. or is, is it, it a cheat? Is it a cheat with digital stitching? I don't know. We'll find out. Know. Yeah, we're alluding, we're, we're alluding to, there was, yeah, there was an interview where Jeremy Strong talked about there being an episode with, like, a 30-minute shot. The True Detective yeah. tracking shot yeah. had at least one digital stitching cheat in it. Real heads yeah, saw it. Yeah, so... Yeah, of course. Like, we'll see. I mean, I think I trust the succession guys not to cheat just because, like, generally they don't care about this, like, kind of, like, butch, muscular filmmaking bullshit necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> they're actually proud for the show to be a little bit ugly in some spots. I, um, I like the yeah. ugliness of the show. It, it reminds me a lot of The Sopranos in their, like, really, really banal reality. It's very purgatorial that they're trapped in. I, I, I'm excited to get into the ATN stuff. I've been craving it throughout the whole series um it'll be interesting because there's a lot a lot of real world antecedents for atn drama that you could pull from between you know host shakeups at fox news to lawsuits against fox news to you know just the regular drama of programming all of their insane but entertaining and successful uh shows yeah, I wonder if Ravenhead's coming back. Uh, that was um, maybe my fun. favorite episode was the lockdown with Ravenhead, where Tom is very oh, delicately yeah, we... <laughs> but poorly probing the depths of Ravenhead's interest, interest in Hitler. In, uh, yeah, Nazis and Hitler. Your dog's yeah, name is Blondie. I think <laughs> S-tier episode yeah. for us. Yeah, it would be fun to meet another ATN angle. It would be. Um, we've seen we've seen some of like the bimbos before, just like. Uh, Tom and 
and um, in, in the last season before oh, the raid. The opening credits had a great ATN joke with the uh, screen and screen that I noticed. It was, um, I believe, deep. It was oh, something yeah, like they, deep they, state accidentally displays classified documents on NBA Jumbotron. NBA Jumbotron. That was a really, yeah, really I good one. A, I have the new the new changes to the um, to the title card. So. There's also China hack could see 40 million Americans entombed in their electric Love cars. Uh, <laughs> the writers, you they burn so many good jokes yeah. on these uh, opening credits slash background news channel, news channel jokes. They're really good. Yeah, that's why I would like to see more of it, you know, because it's, it's, it's very Well, I, I do and, like uh, that they leave it, us. It, they don't overdo it. They leave us wanting more. Always, and anything that's always. slightly too wacky, they leave in the background and don't call out too hard. But I think we're almost done. Well, the we final, the final note that I had about all the characters was that unfortunately, Comfrey died on the way back to her home planet. <laughs> Rip, rip to a real one. Mourn you till I join you, Comfrey. Uh, we'll play uh, Wiz Khalifa's "See You Again" over the the outro here. Um, <laughs> yeah so um any stray thoughts things that we forgot to say parting thoughts and we, we want to pull anything from our list of annotations gabby um from, from the footnotes. Um, i mean there's some good some good stuff the uh hundred flowers bloom which also was uh in the first episode of season three ken says it here let a thousand sunflowers bloom while he's eating sunflower seeds it's a, a mao reference um yeah, there's a few other ones. Um, I like the, when uh, Greg Bumper. I like when they reference Shib, Grey, Shib, gardens. Grey Gardens. Yeah. Grey Gardens is a great. Yeah, uh, I'm surprised that they hadn't already <laughs> referenced Grey Gardens when it comes to the bag. You could slide pieces. it across the floor after a bank heist bag. Oh my god, so funny. We didn't talk about Greg's date and 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 Greg's date basically being Greg from the pilot at <laughs> Logan's birthday. Just. <laughs> Todd was so um, catty about her her bag. I didn't think the bag was that so, big. I suppose in this so context, he was, so, he was so catty about her in general. It made me he see how like, having a big bag is a social signifier to these people because it means that you have yes. to walk with your you feet to, around yeah. the city to get places, and you don't just have like people handing you money and wallets. People aren't taking it for you. Yeah. He was so funny. Just like he's like she's eating all the canapes. She's asking people personal questions. I don't know. Tom is so effeminate sometimes that it's Tom. Just, it just well, like all and... social climbers in literature, Tom has mastered the finer kind of intricacies of the new set that he's adopted, and he's kind of uh, lapped them in it. So he's able to make all these catty callouts about the faux pas of people around him. It's part of the survival mechanism that he's developed. I don't think yes. that even Shiv would it, notice yeah. something like that because Tom needs to be an enforcer right. of these norms uh, to justify the fact that he's successfully climbed the ladder. Yeah, it's not something the Roy's... This is, this is like some, some deep yeah, Edith Wharton shit right here, but it's definitely, definitely <laughs> no, there. This is, this is Tom's problem, though, you know, his his, his pathology is just uh, of, of needing to um, become somebody who he thinks is important. But the, the dynamic with Greg and Tom in this episode was just hilarious. Um, their sort of, like, weird intimacy and, and Tom leaning into Greg to ask if he rummage to fruition had a bit of a rummage why, why do you need to why do you need to know that i mean i laughed so hard but um just just the way that uh that the, the two of them were interacting here and and 
Tom seems to be a little bit exasperated with with Greg, but he still he still enjoys it. It's it's fun for him, and you know he's not having a good time right now. So yeah, Greg is one of the few things torturing Greg's one of the few things that he can still get some simple joy out of. Yeah. I just love that the actress who plays Bridget is named Francesca Root Dodson, which is, that should have been the name of a character on Succession. It should have been. That's yeah. a really good Root, Root Dodson. Dodson. Yeah. That's a good one, yeah. Oh, and we got a tiny bit of and, Jess in the background of this episode where she laughs at kind of a fucked up joke that, that Ken makes. Um, you know, who is Jess? That, uh, Jess? Jess Jordan, uh, played by Juliana Canfield, Ken's uh, long suffering. Oh, the assistant, camp. yes. Yes, I well, yes. Ken used to have this big group around him, like Comfrey and everyone else, and now he doesn't have any advisors anymore to tell him that the hundred has actually yeah. been thought of fifty times. Well, I mean, yeah, he Jess had a lot of he had a lot of yes but she, men, but yeah, yeah, Jess has always been there from the beginning. But she's she's not much of an advisor. She, you know, yeah, yeah. Wonder if we'll see more Jess this season. I, I, mean, we'd, we'd, I think so. I think we'd always like to see her role expanded. I think that you know, Canfield has said that. Um, she thinks that Jess's role would be smaller on the show were it not for the intervention of Jeremy Strong, who uh, has he has on a, on a few occasions she said insisted that Jess be included in scenes where she wasn't scripted to be because you know it makes sense for her to be around constantly. I like that Aww, what a Ken. Mesh. Well, here's a way in which Ken is like his father. He needs to have an entourage uh, around him to do things for him and um, take you know take orders from him, whereas. Shift doesn't seem to have any employees or anything in her orbit, and nope. Yeah, they they don't care about their assistants, but Kendall's he's very very reliant on the assistant. Ships are yeah, and it needs to be particular, and she knows about his drug habits, and yeah, I mean, for everybody else, it seems you know for for the other two, Shiv, it seems like assistants. Are Shiv can go to the store by herself. She doesn't, but she can. <laughs> Kendall absolutely you think she knows the not. price of a gallon of milk. I don't know if she knows the price because she doesn't need to look, but like she can go and um, shop for herself and do any number of things. Uh, yeah. It was interesting to see her packing her own clothes uh, in that final scene because I always think about how they you never see them packing when they travel, and I just wonder like. I don't know. I don't know if I'd want somebody to be packing everything for me. Like, that's, well, it's, it beca- it it's a slippery so invasive, slope but... because it's like, uh, well, you get to save 30 minutes of your precious time and you have people who are, you know, dealing with the intimate details. Poking around. Yeah, I mean, stuff. you've got yeah. people who are cleaning your bedroom and bathroom and office and kitchen for you. They don't have to clean. So that's a kind of short, yeah, I guess it's just it's a, a given, short you know? jump from that. They don't to, think about it. Yeah. I think it, it is interesting how they all take for granted having help uh, and having people around them to drive them and pack for them and clean for them. Uh, I think that we see it a lot with Greg and it's presented as sort of an amusing faux pas, how he acknowledges the help. He'll <laughs> sort of, he doesn't know the etiquette with awkwardly dealing with all of the staff and attendants that they have around on the yacht or in the cars or whatever and the etiquette is right. actually yeah. don't acknowledge them right exactly there no real person involved yeah there's so many great moments actually again just circling back to carrie in previous seasons when carrie started to speak up for herself a bit more there's a great there's a great moment in what it takes where she speaks up during that scene with the vice president played by reed bernie and his reaction is just like such like stunned silence he's like uh-huh 
Oh, yeah. it's such a great moment. Yeah. Um, She's like, even if it isn't real, there's a reason that it does feel real, right? And she says it's so deadpan. I, I love her. I love her delivery of, of lines. Um, yeah, there was that just really quickly she she asked logan if uh he wants to talk to the kids and he didn't really answer and then she she tries to arrange a call and they're very rude to her um not saying you know they need to be nice to her but it's kind of insane the way that they they talk oh that's why again uh, i think that i thought it was very heavily implied or even confirmed at the end of season three that she and logan were having an affair yeah, oh, yeah oh, sure. and 100%. i think that the kids 100%. have so but much just, seen just... it before their comments to her while being quite rude and even disgusting on the surface or they're more about being fed up with their father than about her like this is their comments yeah. about you know oh take dad's cock out of your mouth to answer us and pop it back in uh, is <laughs> that's about their dad's mo i mean of course that's Absolutely, very disrespectful yeah. to her but well and again yeah. if we want to talk about reactionary anti-feminism and who the most evil characters on the show are carries in that conversation you know, this hey, sort of like she's climbing a Hope Hicks ass, you know. She's yeah, Brandon thinks she is Hope, is Hope Hicks. Hicks. Yeah, that's a good comparison because she's yeah. a she's yeah, a bright young thing, good. you know, she's so talented and she's got gumption and next thing you know, she's indispensable to some senior citizen uh who wants or maybe succeeds at I don't think that, that Trump ever Trump does not have sex. Let's just get this clear. Um <laughs> But uh, Logan uh, Logan Roy does. Has everybody stopped listening to this podcast yet? Yeah. Well, we're um. anyway. Uh, no, she's like a hope hicks, and she's very. Yeah. It's a like Tom. I think she's an opportunistic climber uh, that is at least temporarily in a good position in Logan's good graces. And I, I thought it was interesting Tom trying to find a measure of security with Logan in this episode, where he was like, "If I." If Shiv and I get divorced, do I still get to keep my job? And Logan's right. answer was, and he, was good, yeah, I'm not going to answer that, basically. Because it doesn't benefit yeah. me to give you any kind of guarantee. But, you know, Carrie's the same way. Also very sad for, for Logan to just have absolutely zero opinion on his daughter getting divorced. Um, not that, you know, it's surprising, but just, you know, another kind of like, you know, gutting reminder that uh, relationships aren't real to him. Real yeah. relationships, yeah, it's sad. But um, yeah, I like Carrie. We'll see where we'll see where it goes. We'll see how much is she, she able you know, to like get got. out of this with any measure of lasting security, or is she just going to go down? Her best option is to just you know flail out and go into the private sector eventually. I mean, I just I thought it was interesting on my rewatch. I was noting that Carrie's first line of dialogue is in um, season two's return, where she is informing Shiv that Logan and uh, Ken and Roman have gone to the UK without her knowing. So even that very first appearance, she's sort of setting herself oppositionally to Shiv um, and sort of like placing herself between the siblings and Logan. Yeah, she's a schemer. Yeah, all the kids. She made the crack. She made the crack about the kids' menu to Roman. Yeah, so she's she's not scared. She's stealing. She is, and she's you know ready to be wife number four or five or whatever. Or <laughs> I I don't know which one he's on at this point. I I can't lie. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I think that's I interesting. She, and again, she'll be four. She starts out by being helpful to him, like many we've seen other women do, and then indispensable, and then they have to become romantically involved because otherwise he can't deal with having right. friend assistant and advisor the way she said that so quickly and so assuredly 
It's great. She's practiced that she in the mirror to, a lot. She, he needed Absolutely. someone to replace Marsha, and she saw an opportunity to do so. So, <laughs> Marsha shopping in Milan forever. That was forever. that was pretty funny. <laughs> well, we should wind down. Um, I think we've yeah. covered our stray observations. Marie, um, it's always mm-hmm. great to have you. Is there anything you would like to to plug or mention? Uh, no, I'm see just anything a, good lately. Have I seen anything good lately? I watched an excellent 1932 film called Jewel Robbery. Have you seen this one? Ah, I love Jewel Robbery. Jewel Robbery, robbery yes, is classic. so good. I loved Jewel Robbery, uh, which obviously I don't need to plug because it was made 90 years ago. Um, but I, yeah, I liked that movie. I don't have anything to plug. I'm just a just a private citizen who enjoys watching Succession and posting online. Actually, you guys turned me on to Succession because I never watched a minute of it before you asked me to come on to talk about Danny McBride. And then I was like, I'll see what this show's all about. You know, I don't really have high hopes for any new TV show. And I really enjoyed it. I uh, So thank you for getting me on Succession. And I'll be watching this season. Well, we're, we're glad you did so that you could come on and, and give us your insights. It's great to be able to talk to you about this. Um, Yes. So we want to say thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, Thanks to Gabby. Thanks to Marie. And thanks to producer Dan Black. Uh, For folks listening, if you are enjoying the Roycast, the best way to show your support is to leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your app of choice. The second best way to show your support is through the square link in our bio. Roycast is a passion project, and we incur minor ongoing fees related to producing and hosting this independent show. The content will never be paywalled, and we thank those who have supported us so far. We'll be back next week to discuss another new episode of Succession's final season. Until then, everyone, take care of yourselves. Goodbye.